Thank you, Rick. Thank you, choir. Wonderful as always. Also, what a just personal privilege. Uh, say thanks to my wife for singing. Uh, I said this, I think, the first time you heard her sing or early on in our life together. I was invited to preach a revival or something, and I said to the church that invited me, you know, my wife sings. And they said, we've had other preachers who thought their wife could sing too. <laughs> uh, but mine actually can, and, and I am uh, proud of her. Tell you something you don't know. She has been worried about this morning uh, for the last few days because her throat's been bothering her a little bit and her voice has been bothering her a little bit. And more than once she has said to me, uh, I don't know what I'm going to do. I have to sing Sunday and my voice is terrible. I would love for that to be my terrible voice. (laughs) Good night alive. On my absolute best day, I will never sound half as she does. Half as good as she does. So thank you, sweetheart. Uh, also, while I'm taking a moment of personal privilege, we have some dear friends here today, David Dixon and Martha Tucker, uh, sitting over there on the edge. Uh, we have, Susan and I have got to watch them grow up together, so that's been kind of a joy for us. They were here on our first Sunday with you all on nearly a year and a half ago, just to come down to be supportive. Uh, I am thrilled to have the privilege of marrying them on New Year's Eve, coming up in a couple of months. So they're down to spend the day with us, so we're glad that we are here. And I know that you will keep them in your prayers as they get ready to start their life together. Uh, Finally, before I read the scripture, Carolyn mentioned the bishop is coming in three weeks. Uh, That is true, preaching at 11 o'clock. We had, in talking about uh, our Sunday schedule, that was the day that Carolyn was slated to preach, uh, All Saints. So she is still preaching at 8.30 and 9.45, but she got bumped by the bishop at 11. Uh, It will be good, and you will be blessed. So if you really want to have a good day on November 6th, come to the 8.30 or the 9.45 service and hear Carolyn preach, and then come back at 11, hear the bishop preach, and get two good sermons in a day. So uh, will you do that? This is when you go, of course we'll do that. (laughs) Will you do that? There you go. Of course. There you go. Thank you so much. All right. Our scripture this morning is from Paul's letter to the Philippians. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. If you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to Philippians chapter 3. Or as always, it's printed on the cover of your bulletin. As you're able, if you would, please stand in honor of the reading of God's word. Finally, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is not troublesome to me. And for you, it is a safeguard. Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of those who mutilate the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, who worship in the spirit of God and boast in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. If anyone else has reason to be confident in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day, a member of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew, born of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Yet, whatever gains I had, these I have come to regard as loss because of Christ. More than that, 
I regard everything as loss because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus as my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I regard them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but one that comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the sharing of his sufferings by becoming like him in his death, if somehow I may attain the resurrection from the dead. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Please be seated and let us pray. Now, dear God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. So, I was asking the children uh, if they knew anybody that kind of thought they were important. You ever met somebody who kind of had a puffed up image of themselves? Somebody who thought they were a little more important maybe than you thought they were? Somebody who thought they were somebody? We have this hunger, it seems to be, in our society today. People want to be somebody. People want to be famous at whatever the cost. People want their 15 minutes of fame. I don't know, but I think that may be what has given rise to this whole reality TV thing. You know, people who seem to be willing to do anything just to have a chance to be on television. I think I first noticed it in American Idol. Just went off the air after 15 years of it being a very popular show. And I was always fascinated that people would travel from wherever they lived to a particular city, stand in line for hours, sometimes days, wait for the opportunity to do two things. One, to sing badly on national television. And secondly, to be humiliated for singing badly on national television. Not embarrassed, although they should have been embarrassed, but humiliated, ridiculed, if they did not sing well. But they didn't seem to care. They got their face on TV. They thought they were somebody. People want to think they are somebody. And that's not really new. There were people like that in Paul's day. And he talks about it in Philippians. Now, if you've been here for the last several weeks, you know we've been studying Paul's letter to the church at Philippi, our New Testament book of Philippians. Uh, each week, the title has been Always Rejoicing because joy is such a prominent theme. We've talked about how God gives Paul joy even when Paul is a prisoner. And we've also talked about how God gives joy to you and to me. When he starts chapter 3, he says, finally, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice. So this theme of joy continues. He starts off with chapter 3 saying, rejoice. But then he launches into some pretty significant warnings. And it's almost like he takes a detour away from joy. He has concerns with people who think they are somebody. 
Now, you heard me read the scripture, but I want to read it to you again from a different translation. This is Eugene Peterson's translation. We know it as the message. Here are a couple of verses from the message. And that's about it, friends. Be glad in God. I don't mind repeating what I've written in earlier letters, and I hope you don't mind hearing it again. Better safe than sorry. So here goes. Steer clear of the barking dogs, those religious busybodies, all bark and no bite. All they're interested in is appearances, knife-happy circumcisers, I call them. Paul is talking about a group of people within the life of the church who came from a Jewish background, like Paul did, who had observed the law, sought to be righteous according to the law, were circumcised according to the law, and believed that everybody who wanted to come to faith had to come to faith exactly as they did, to come through the law, to come through circumcision. Their thought on the faith was if you really want to be a Christian, first you have to be a good Jew. The exact opposite of what Paul had been saying. Paul said there is neither Jew nor Gentile. There's not slave or free. There's not male or female. All those distinctions are gone because we are all what? One in Christ Jesus. But these people didn't see it that way. They believed they were somebody because of their Jewish heritage. And that the only way to faith was the exact same path they had taken. They thought they were somebody. And part of the way they expressed that was they looked down on people that were different than them. I wish we could say that people don't do that quite so much anymore, but people still do that. When I was in college, uh, I was visiting some relatives, and I had a cousin introduce me to a friend who was from South Florida. And my cousin introduced me as, uh, David, he's going to be a pastor. And this lady from South Florida said, How, praise God, that's just great. We need good pastors. She said, oh, the pastors in my church, they are wonderful people of God. They are great people of God. And our church is wonderful. Well, I was kind of excited that she was happy about a church. But she wasn't done. She said, our church is spirit-filled. Our church is Bible-believing. We're not like all those other churches. All those other churches? Then she says, all those hypocritical churches, like the Baptists, she said. Like the Presbyterians, she said. Like, and I knew it was coming, the Methodists, she said. And I said, say it ain't so. She said, no, we're not like them. We're not like those hypocrites. And then she's not done. Then she says, everybody who really loves Jesus comes to our church. I thought, well, that's pretty impressive. You're drawing all the people who really love Jesus. But that's what she said. Everybody who really loves Jesus comes to our church. And then she says to me, so what kind of church are you going to? Where will you preach? I said, well, I'm going to be a Methodist preacher because I'm one of those non-loving, non-Jesus-loving hypocrites. (laughs) She thought her church was the only church. There were people in Paul's day who believed the way they came to faith 
was the only way to come to faith. And that wasn't really new even then. All the way through the New Testament, you can see it. That idea that people looked at, uh, they had descended from Abraham, and they thought that made them somebody. The very beginning of the gospel, before Jesus even begins his public ministry, John the Baptist is at the Jordan River baptizing people. You remember? And some Jews come to check out what he's doing, and this is what John the Baptist says in Luke chapter 3. He says to the crowds, You brood of vipers. Now, I'm thinking that was not politically correct to say to people back then. You brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits worthy of repentance. Do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our ancestor. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Jesus then begins his public ministry. It's crucified, resurrected. The Holy Spirit descends on the day of Pentecost and the church is born, but that attitude is still there. Acts chapter 15. Then certain individuals came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers and sisters, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Unless you do it the way we did it, your salvation is not real. You cannot be saved unless you first become good Jews like we were. They thought their Jewish heritage made them somebody. Their problem was God had called them to be somebody, but they had lost their identity as children of God. Unless you become like us, you cannot be saved. Paul is warning about these people. So he says in verse 3, again from Peterson's translation, the real believers are the ones the Spirit of God leads to work away in this ministry. We couldn't carry this out by ourselves, and we know it. Paul says, you can't do this on your own. You just can't. No matter how hard you work, no matter how hard you try to be righteous according to the law, no matter how many boxes you've checked, how many commandments you've kept, you cannot do it on your own. Your heritage is not enough. It's not enough. But still you've got people today that think somehow who they are is all they need. I went to school with a guy like that. My first year of seminary, I had a friend, nice guy, nice guy. His father, at the time we were in school, was a district superintendent in another state, another conference. But he told us pretty quickly that his father had served all the important churches in his home conference. All of them. I don't know how many unimportant churches there were back there. Apparently quite a few, because his father had served only the important ones. And we heard about it all the time. We'd be having lunch. Somebody would say, hey, have you heard what so-and-so church is doing? They're doing great work. And he would say, we know when my father served such-and-such a church, and I was helping him, what he did, and his father always did better things than anybody else was doing. Even if there was a problem, if somebody said, did you hear this? Isn't that a shame? He'd say, well, if my father had served that church, 
and that was helping him, he would have, he was able to diagnose and prescribe the solution to every church problem there was by telling us hypothetically what his daddy would do. Now, I appreciate him being proud of his father, but he kind of got carried away. He thought because his father had been a great preacher that that cleared the way for him. And it bled over into the classroom. We would go into an exam or turn in a paper, and he always knew he was going to do great, except he didn't always do great. But when he didn't always do great, there was always a reason. And he would explain it to us. He would tell us, that New Testament professor really doesn't understand the New Testament. That church history professor, they just really don't know their church history. That preaching professor just really doesn't understand preaching. And then he would tell us, I learned this, guess where? From my dad. And I know, he would tell us, I know this is a work. Everything he turned in, he knew was a work because he had learned it from his daddy. But let me tell you something that's odd about Emory University. When they have to choose between the grade the professor thinks you deserve and the grade you think you deserve, they have a tendency to side with the professor every time. It's funny how they do that. He didn't come back after his first year, and we hated it. He thought who he was as the son of his father was all he needed. Paul was dealing with people who said, we are children of Abraham, that's it. We got all we need. Paul says, that's not what it's about. It's not about your resume. Then he says, if it were about your resume, I can play that game. Because my resume, my Jewish heritage looks just as good as yours and really better than yours. I'm from Benjamin. I was a Pharisee. I was zealous. I was righteous according to the law. I was all of those things and then some. If you want to compare, we can do that. But it doesn't count, Paul says, for anything. Nothing. What he says, picking up in verse 7, again, one more time, let me read to you, Gene Peterson. This is his translation of verses 7 through 9. The very credentials these people are waving around as something special, I'm tearing up and throwing out with the trash, along with everything else I used to take credit for. And why? Because of Christ. Yes, all the things I once thought were so important are gone from my life. Compared to the high privilege of knowing Christ Jesus as my master firsthand, Everything I once thought I had going for me is insignificant. Dog dung, it says. I've dumped it all in the trash so that I can embrace Christ and be embraced by him. I didn't want some petty, inferior brand of righteousness that comes from keeping a list of rules when I could get the robust kind that comes from trusting Christ. Excuse me. God's righteousness. Paul says... All the resume in the world doesn't matter. What matters, the only thing that matters, is that you know Christ Jesus as your Lord and Savior. That's it. That's it. John Orris was a church leader in, in communist Soviet Union days, before the fall of communism. There was an underground church, and John Orris was one of the leaders. After the fall of the Berlin Wall, after the fall of communism, he was reflecting on what it was like to be a church leader under communism. This is what he said. 
During communism, many of us preached, and people came at the end of the service, and they said, I have decided to become a Christian. We told them, it's good that you want to become a Christian, but we would like to tell you that there's a price to be paid. Why don't you reconsider what you want to do? Because many things can happen to you. You can lose, and you can lose big. A high percentage of these people chose to take place in a three-month, take part in a three-month catechism class. At the end of the period, many participants declared their desire to be baptized. Typically, I would respond, it's really nice that you want to be baptized. Uh, but when you give your testimony, there will be informers here who will jot down your name. Tomorrow, the problems will start. Count the cost. Christianity is not easy. Christianity is not cheap. You can be demoted. You can lose your job. You can lose your friends. You can lose your neighbors. You can lose your kids who are trying to climb the social ladder. You can even lose your life. Let me tell you my joy. You hear that word? Let me tell you my joy. When we looked into their eyes... And their eyes were in tears, and they told us, if I lose everything but my personal relationship with my Lord Jesus Christ, it is still worth it. That's what Paul is saying. If I lose everything but still have Christ, it's okay. I have lost everything, but because I still have Christ, I'm good. I'm willing to give away everything else, to throw it on the trash. So long as I still know Christ, that's all that matters. It, it doesn't matter what kind of job you hold. It doesn't matter what your resume looks like. It doesn't matter what your income is, what your portfolio looks like, the kind of car you drive, the kind of house you live in, the nice corner office. None of that matters. Paul starts off warning about some other folks, but I think there's a subtle warning for the Philippians and for you and me to say, not only do you not want them to influence you, you don't want to become like them. You don't want to slide down that road where you start to think you are somebody because of anything else. Because all that ever really truly matters is not who you are in the eyes of the world, but who you are in Christ Jesus. That's it. He starts off by saying, finally, brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. And I said that after that, he kind of takes a detour from joy into all these warnings. But I'm really not sure it's a detour after all. I think he's being careful to remind us, as he says, rejoice in the Lord, that knowing Christ, knowing Jesus as Lord and Savior, is the only, only true way to really have joy. Let us pray. Gracious God, help us to never worry about who we are in the eyes of the world, who we are in the eyes of our neighbors, what we have, what we claim to have done. Remind us, dear Lord, that all that counts is who we are in Christ Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.